0: Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku a e or Waituhi or tamaki, no mai, haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Three exceptional writers joined consummate chair Paula Morris to talk about and read from their latest work. The lineup includes expat Miro Bilbra with her memoir of a nineteen seventies childhood in a Marlborough Sounds Commune in the time of the Manaroans, US fiction Doyenne Marilyn Robinson with latest novel Jack, and Booker Prize-winning Glaswegian novelist Douglas Stewart with Shuggy Bain. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Join me in welcoming our guest today. Uh kia ora to Miro Bilbra.
2: Hello, hello, kia ora.
1: Uh, Mira's in Sydney. She's trying to keep it on the down low, but I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, kia ora to uh, Marilyn Robinson. Hello, I'm in Saratoga Springs, New York. Hello, Marilyn. Lovely to have you here. And Kia ora to Douglas Stewart.
3: Hi, Paula. I am coming in from New York.
1: Hello, very nice for you all to be here. Uh, we'll we'll know. We'll as some of you know from yesterday, I'll talk to each of our guests in turn. They'll share a reading with us. And then we'll all come together at the end for a question or two, depending on time. So uh, two of our guests will now mysteriously disappear because our first conversation this morning is with Miro Bilbra, a writer and filmmaker from New Zealand, now living in Sydney. Miro grew up in Wellington and on Waiheke Island before joining her father in the South Island for a life that is the opposite of suburban. And in fact, is the opposite, completely the opposite of my own childhood. Her memoir... About coming of age in the 70s is called In the Time of the Manaroans, a reference to members of a commune in the Marlborough Sounds who were friends of her father, the writer and artist Norman Bilborough. It's a vivid, lush and witty exploration of an era and its outliers. Miro writes, the adult society my father and his rural hippie friends invited me into offered deceptively easy access that was heaven, hell and a limbo of ennui in between. I've experienced nothing since that resembles it. Kia ora, Miro.
2: Hello, Paula. Lovely to be here. Hello, everyone.
1: And thanks very much for joining us. I mean, I wanted to begin by saying you first explored this time of your life in a short film called Floodhouse in 2004. What made you want to return to the story and expand the time frame for a memoir?
2: Um, I, th- I think because um, film is, is such a sort of... Um, discreet and rigorous form of its own, and there's so many things you you, you can't do stream of consciousness for, for starters. Um, but I, I I didn't realize um, that I would ever return to the material. It just struck me in later years that it really was a kind of world unto itself, and and as you read, um, that I hadn't experienced anything like it again, and I I felt that there was um a kind of shortfall of in literature of that kind of time and place being discussed. Um, so it was it was rich pickings. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Now you lived with your grandmother, Margaret, in Wellington from the age of seven until you were 14. Would you talk a little about why you were sent to live with her and the influence she had on your life?
2: Yes, well, um, it was a sort of a, an abrupt leave taking. I, I think that I was a very um, by my own lights, I was a pretty amiable child, but I I, I hit adolescence hard um, and it was a, it was a sort of a very contained suburban life. Um, and I just, I sort of, well, my dad said I grew too big for it, which was, which was generous and sort of salved the wound of being out on my ear with kind of three days notice uh, on the ferry with my hippie dad, um, which was fairly terrifying um but yeah, it was I think it was just a sort of classic um adolescent restlessness and horniness and discontent and uh and my grandmother had just had enough of it you know she she I was like girl number five or six and she was in her five and she was in her um she was in her mid sixties at the time um and she also had a son who was three years older than me that was um that was quite troubled. So I think she had too much on her hands. Mm. You left
1: to, leave, to live with your father in the aptly named Flood House, mm. dubbed by locals, as you say, as a hippie house. And you describe it as lacking in every basic stimulant from TV to white sugar. And in fact, you said your father was a Puritan. Now this was your adolescent point of view, but do you mm. still think that's true?
2: Um. Well, Puritan is perhaps a, a bit unadulterated. Um he's also a small time hedonist. Um, but 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 that was later actually that he came back to a little bit of hedonism. It was, you know, there is a sort of puritanical streak um in the hippie movement, but he especially so I mean he, he didn't do drugs, so that set him apart. Um I I I think, yeah. Just not in the pu- you know not wholly, I guess. But yes, there's definitely a streak of that, and it was um, it was a bit of a sore toe in the happy world. He was a sore toe in that sense.
1: Now, your grandmother's home was a world away from your father's, and what you describe brilliantly as the Munroan women in clay trimmed gowns and shaggy hand knits who visited the flood house. Now, you and your sister grew up in what you described as rural poverty. But I was interested that you resisted the invitations to stay instead with a school friend in Nelson, instead feeling a nostalgia for the long drop and squalor of your father's place. What mm-hmm. won you over to that way of life?
2: I don't know if I was won over to it, but it was as if it had been imprinted in me. You know, I I, I don't think um, oh yeah, I I don't think it was um as as sort of voluntary as that. And and I guess when you say, you pick up on the word nostalgia, which I used was also because I, I'd never had enough of my parents, so it was probably natural that I would feel nostalgia for something that I never got to surf it on. You know, like most people, I guess. (laughs) I you know I only spent seven years of my childhood with them, so so I guess it's kind of perhaps natural that I felt nostalgia for for that. that strange squalor. But also I think that there was something about my dad that um, you know, that in the chaos there was quite a bit of creativity. And I was probably unconsciously responding to that. And I found um that the sort of more middle class, desirable environments I was exposed to, they were enviable and I and, and I coveted them, but I drew back a bit, you know, maybe I I found them a little bit um, well yes, hygienic and and sort of of clinicals, the word that particular house was very suburban, so it would have pressed a lot of buttons. My grandmother wasn't very suburban either. she was sort of um she was a communist and she was artist. so it was just an alien aesthetic. and and yeah,
1: yeah, when I was reading your memoir and thinking about you in terms of coming on today with Marilyn Robinson, I was thinking about Marilyn's first novel, Housekeeping, with the two sisters who are passed from one person's care to the next. They lose their mother. And there's one sister, Ruthie, uh, who embraces the sort of eccentricity and anti-domesticity of her aunt Sylvie, who is a transient. And Ruthie and, and Sylvie are inventing, I think, what a home and what to be at home means. At the end of your book, you write that dreams of lost homes and homelessness and yearning a cornerstone dreams for me. I assume as an adult. Where did you feel most at home growing up?
2: Oh, I I think that I had, um, you know, I, I lived with my grandmother for seven years, and I, and probably five or six of those I was just completely absorbed into her, into her world, and I felt very at home. You know, she we lived in a in a flat um, in Kelburn, and she was just a very she created a world, a kind of story world for you to live in. Um, and I felt very at home there. It was the three of us. Um, the house was put on the market and, and she put, she put slogans on the gate saying, you know human rights before dollars and protested the sale of the house, which was being sold out from under us, our home. Um, so it was a sort of a very, you know, it was kind of an alive existence in its way and, and we were a unit. Um, until, you know, adolescence, I fell foul. Yeah.
1: Mira, will you read to us from
2: the book, please? Yes, yes with pleasure. Um, okay, so um, the bit I'm going to read is called Being a Snitchell, and it falls early in the narrative. Um, and as we've just been talking about at 14, I've made a, a short, sharp departure from my grandmother's, um, for my father's flood house, about which I had no say. Wiener Schnitzel. Once a week, my father bears a volume of river water in a copper outside and carries buckets and supplementary saucepan and kettleful to the afterthought that passes as a bathroom. With no running water at the floodhouse for drinking or bathing, the river provides. Bearing ever diminishing vessels like some kind of riff on the three bears, my sister and I participate in the hot water convoy. Her ginger slip of cat, Joey, named after the Dylan song, wins in the slipstream. The bathroom is so permeable, so outside in, that my father has to lay an old plank from door to bath's edge in order to cross the primeval soup that passes for floor. Bath hour is a heroic effort made on his daughter's account. Crouched in the warm, rusty puddle between yellowing bath walls, candlelight hurling labile shadows at the outlying everglades of the room, I fail to appreciate his labour. It's a spooky experience. It's cleansing properties unconvincing. My father tries to ease the horror of transition. Once a week he agrees I can eat the thin-cut Venus schnitzel that was a staple of my grandmother's. I sense the concession this jesus sandaled vegetarian must make to enter the Havelock butcher He's adaptable, my father, not one to stand on ideology or, in this case, cost, even though he's barely making do on a solo parent's benefit. I am adamant about meat. A zealot when it comes to equity. My sister frowns over the special dietary dispensation, but is unwilling to participate in the consumption of baby cow. And the second piece uh, is about one of the Manoroans, the Sort of the tribe of commune dwellers that use our place as a sometime crash pad on their journeys round the South Island. Eddie Fox. There are no photographs of Eddie Fox that I know of. I point my borrowed school camera at him once, but he shows his teeth in warning smile and says that tribal people are correct. A photograph steals your soul. I shoot him with my camera eye instead. A few of those likenesses survive here. Eddie Fox walks on the balls of bare, high-arched feet wearing band trousers caught with rope at the waist, a thick red stripe down the profile of each leg. The whites of his eyes flash like an animal's on high alert. A whinnying laugh does nothing to dispel the impression. Eddie prides himself on his vigilance, approaching his surrounds with a mystic outlook and deliberate movements of a well-disciplined paranoid. A gallant who doesn't like other people all that much, Welsh but Black Irish in looks, central casting for Gypsy, did I mention the limp? Not long after Saratoga John has ghosted through, I encounter Eddie Fox in the shadowlands of the hallway, He has come to break the journey from Tahuna, a commune on the outskirts of Nelson, to Manoroa and to rest and graze the chestnut horse he rode in this afternoon. At my father's suggestion, Eddie Fox follows me back down the hall to build a fire in the front room hearth. He preaches the pyramid technique, screwing each sheet of newspaper into a twist and stacking the kindling into a meticulous teepee so that oxygen can circulate and fan the flames. I look on interjecting the occasional question Eddie reciprocating in this way as the fire is richly constructed so is my arrival at my father's house and the raw acts leading up to this event if no one has taken such an interest in my history or my vocabulary up until now that's probably because he's earnest as an adolescent Eddie Fox a bit Socratic Perhaps my account of leaving 46A, my grandmother's, touches some childhood leave-taking or other outcasting of his own. He's just the kind who might have run away to the circus or the sea or to join the military. As for my father, Eddie Fox gets his goat. Ah, bullshit, I hear him thinking, as the limping alpha splits a pile of kindling in competitive seconds but fails to help with the dishes or clear his drained mug from the sofa arm. The Welshman is so reliably doctrinaire that my father, physically approximate always, not given to rhetoric or showmanship, is reliably provoked. Perhaps autodidact Eddie reminds him of his didactic dad. He keeps his distaste to himself as best he can. Happy hospitality is sacred. For his part, Eddie Fox is not as obtuse as my father believes. Soon enough, he finds an excuse to drift out into the overrun garden to check on the horse and the aroma all night. Mine is the apple for Lenny the horse, with which I follow. The visual drama of the visitor goes conspicuously unheeded by father and youngest daughter. Young and unferenome and clouded, my sister is too haughty to be interested in such a male display bird. She glides by, eyelashes lowered, definitive chin tilted, distant royalty on the move. No matter. Eddie Fox and I develop a friendship of sorts, unlikely, provisional, no strings, Q and A sustained, unwritten by the amusing prospect of what the other will do or say next, by Eddie's deliberation and my impulse, by our mutual verbal pomp and swagger. Thanks to Eddie to this day, I can nurse a fire through the rickety stages where infant mortality is high, through blustery, smoky adolescence and into full flagrance.
1: Thank you very much, Mira. Thanks. So the one person, you know, that we have not talked about is your mother, the artist Christina Conrad, Mm -hmm. and... Tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you felt that she did not love you as she might and surrendered you to your grandmother's care. And that feeling you talk about in your adult life becoming a contaminant that I worked around as best I could. She's a remote figure in the memoir and rarely present in your life. Do you feel that your book works around her as well?
2: Um, Well, I, I, you know, she was... She was off screen in in much of my of much of my life, and so um, I kept it that way. I guess I was never going to write a kind of um, what is it a kiss and tell all. Um, I I wasn't writing the book to get my feelings out, as my dad always used to advise me when I was younger. Just write it down, get your feelings out, lovey. Um, I wasn't sort of writing in that kind of direct, outpouring way. Um, I just would have been too disgusted with myself if I'd done that and I wouldn't have been interested. I used to fill diaries with all of those in there in the garage and I I sort of monthly think that I must burn them, um, but they're in these very beautiful handmade journals that a friend of mine made me, so I can't burn them, but the contents are just execrable. Um, so it wasn't that kind of book. Yeah. Um, I don't really feel that I wrote around her, actually. She's quite forceful and powerful, I think, when she's there. Um, she's a thumbnail. Um, yeah. Would you, I mean, you, you leave
1: us in the 80s, one of my favourite eras, of course. Is, do you have any desire to continue the story? Um, do you mean in,
2: did I in that
1: book or was that what you mean? Well, for another book, perhaps, to I, I, continue on.
2: Yeah, I did write a little bit further on, and it was just sort of really clear to me that 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 was a complete world, and it ended there. And as soon as I got caught up in sort of modernity, um, it went to shit. Uh, it you know it was it was contained. It was contained. And and maybe um, I'm more garrulous than I seem, um, and and I'm sort of already writing again. But I I don't I'm not drawn to a the chronology of my life. Um, I don't feel it's that interesting. It, this was a portrait of a, wor- a world as much as anything. Um, yeah.
1: And it's a wonderful portrait. Thank you so much for joining us, Miro. Please stay around um, because at the end I want to come back and, and talk some more. Kia ora. Too. Thank you. So our next guest is the distinguished US fiction writer, essayist and thinker, Marilyn Robinson. She is the author of five essay collections of Housekeeping, the novel I just mentioned that many consider a 20th century masterpiece, and an interconnected series of four acclaimed novels that began with the Pulitzer Prize winning Gilead in 2004, followed by Home, Lila, and most recently, Jack. All these books, including Housekeeping, Hermione Lee has written, share a preoccupation with loneliness, outcasts, poverty, and the possibility of finding again what has been lost. Set largely in a small town in Iowa in the 40s and 50s, the Gilead novels, if Marilyn will permit me calling them that, explore race, family, and faith quite centrally, especially the concepts of forgiveness, conscience, and repentance. Kia ora, Marilyn, and welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Marilyn, I'm speaking of Jack as a fourth book in a series, but as Casey Sepp in the New Yorker has perceptively noted, it's not accurate to call it a sequel or a book. She says, rather this book and the others are more like the Gospels, telling the same
4: story four different ways. Is that how you see them? Not precisely. I would, I would feel it was a little presumptuous on my part to, Take the Gospels as a model. Um, I think of them as being sort of constellated, you know, so that they there's a sort of gravitational relationship among them. They're all one system in a certain sense, um, but you don't have to read them in sequence. You can read any one, you know, at any point in the sequence. And and uh, they are. My intention was certainly always to make them in, uh, independent, self-standing novels and you know i hope i've done that i think i i think i did it
1: <laughs> i think you have as well now in jack we see the prodigal son so the 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 character who's been a, a problem character in some of the other books we see him falling in love and struggling to be able to live with the woman he sees as his wife in segregated st louis and segregated chicago so he remains the, the very complex man we saw in the other novels easily swayed from his path, a thief, a drunk, too careless for severe consequences. But I've read you say that you can only write about characters you love. So what makes you love Jack?
4: Um, I think, I, I mean, <clears throat> I think that uh, I can only write about characters that I love and I can only write about them if it's not clear to me why I love them, you know? Um, I think that Jack has a he it's as if he uh were made for another civilization than any that actually exists on earth you know he he uh, sort of understands the rules but doesn't feel them as rules you know um this is not rebellion in the conventional sense it's a sort of a bewilderment really you know a sort of a, a, autonomous Experience that that uh, he can't quite control and can't quite explain, even to himself. Um, he has his father as a very firm sort of of guidance, you know, which frankly doesn't do anything but make him embarrassed and reluctant to deal with his father. Um, he, I I don't know. I I feel very often as though. You know one gives a great deal of oneself over to society and convention and so on. um but you feel this sort of blighted twin, I think often that that simply you know is not native to the world that most of us are always accommodating ourselves to. And I don't mean that as a criticism of society. I simply mean it as a grace extended to the people who don't find society that impressive or convincing um, on a routine basis. And of course it's not, you know. They, we, some people don't live with their honesty as successfully as other people do. And um, that's Jack. And in fact, you're talking about extending grace. I mean,
1: I feel that that's what Gilead is about, in a way. At how can someone be forgiven? How can you have sympathy for the devil, etc.? I've got a little quote here from um, uh, from the book where Della, I think um, Jack's wife, is talking, and she says, "I think," and talking to him and about him. I think most people feel a difference between their real lives and the lives they have in the world. But they ignore their souls or hide them, so they can keep things together, keep an ordinary life together. You don't do that. In your way, you're kind of pure, and this is what you're saying, isn't it? This blighted twin,
4: yes, who walks the world. It's a kind of gothic image for it, but what I mean, you know, I I always have the feeling as though I could put together an entire integral self out of everything that I've denied myself in the course of my life, you know? Like there's a, you know, another person or three or four uh, that cohabits with one. And I think that this is universally true. I don't think it's only an eccentricity of mine. How will I ever know? (laughs) But in any case, (laughs) but you know, like in housekeeping, I, I felt as if I couldn't create a satisfactory full character. And so I, Thought of myself as making all the characters basically one character. What they, you know, the contradictions, the prohibitions, all the things that are normally narrowed down into the sort of presented self, they, they are, in my mind in that book, uh, made made complete, separate, but completely kind of harmonious in a strange way.
1: It's very so, interesting to think about it that way. Uh, would you ever write about yourself, Marilyn? I mean, we talked Miro about about really writing about yourself, which is a very difficult thing to do. Would you ever? Do you think write something that personal that
4: looked at the selves you didn't become? Not in a million years. I agree entirely with what she said. I I, uh, I don't know why it's true that our biographies are less interesting than the stories we invent and so on, but I acknowledge it as true and I, I abide by it. I just can't bear to write about myself.
1: Um, I want to go to the reading soon, but I, I want to talk about something key to this novel and to to Gilead as well, anti-miscegenialism anti-miscegenation laws keep Jack from settling down with Della, the woman he loves, and possibly becoming a better man. And when Gilead was published, I interviewed you and was interested to learn from you that 45 states in the U.S. had those laws preventing a black person from marrying a white person, although Isle was was not one of them. So what, what really prevents Jack
4: from going home? Well, you know, one of the things that interested me, after I had read all this history, you know, of abolitionism and so on, is that it over, you know, a a radical and enlightened society is overlaid by a conventional society, you know, so that, you know, even though there are elements of law, for example, against segregation in schools and um, the, the absence of anti-Misaginalist laws and all the rest of it; those things are still in place and they're still influential in that state's culture. But if you talk to people about the history of Iowa, they simply say it has no history, and they but they they sort of adopt history from, you know, the Little Dixie part of Missouri or something. You know, they sort of uh, uh, somehow or other manage to associate themselves with with you know, elements in the culture that are much less liberal and benign than their own history ought to be able to predispose them to, um, and how that happens. I mean, it's tr- it's like a glacier of amnesia that just slipped over um, a society that was developing along much more humane and promising lines, um, and and that's a frightening thing. I mean, everybody knows history is powerful, but it's frightening to see how much can be lost because of these strange tectonics or whatever that I've never even seen a satisfactory description of. It's really extremely interesting. Would you
1: mind giving us a reading from the book now? And then we'll come back and talk some
4: more. All right. Um, Jack has fallen in love with Della, of course, and very. there are a thousand reasons why he's hesitant to pursue this, but partly for one thing, it would cause her any amount of trouble and so on. But in any case, when they're in, when they have first spent this long night talking and um, being together in the the cemetery, she, she invites him to Thanksgiving dinner. And, um, she does it very briefly and he's afraid afterward that she didn't mean it or that he had misunderstood the invitation um, that, you know, he'd heard it wrong or it was ironic or something. So he, he buys a bouquet of roses and he buys a bottle of rum. <laughs> and um, he ends up drinking rum so that he will forget the problem of deciding whether or not he's invited to Thanksgiving dinner. So he woke up feeling pretty damaged. He looked around for the bottle to see how much he had actually drunk and found it in a dresser drawer, exactly half empty, the lid tightly screwed on. He knew he became oddly prudent when he was too drunk to remember the reasoning behind his decisions, but he could guess half tonight and half tomorrow, and then everything would be resolved. Every possibility extinguished. He would not even glance in his thoughts at the worst of them. It was a relief that he would never know for certain what he'd have had time, uh, what he'd have had to regret. So when he woke up again and it was evening, he didn't put on his new shirt and he didn't shave. If he just showed up at her door looking like he always did, not as though he thought she might ask him in, but with the book to give her and some sort of apology to offer, then he'd have kept a promise. She might not have remembered everything she'd said, but of course she'd be glad to have her book. Some of the roses were dropping petals, some were all right. It would be a sort of joke to offer them to her, a part of the apology. But dear Jesus, he couldn't even decide to leave his room. A swallow of rum, just enough to dull him to what he was doing. And then he made the better the better roses into a bunch and put on his hat and jacket and went out into the night without the roses, but he came back for them. Yes, he had the book. The first time he walked past, he saw lights on, so she was probably at home. He was almost disappointed. Just leaving the book and the roses on the step might be the perfect thing in the circumstances. A nice gesture, and she wouldn't have him to deal with. Of course, he could do that in any any case. The second time he passed her door, she or someone had turned on the porch light. This made him wish he had shaved. It made his, his scar itch. He walked far past her street, almost as if he had decided to give up on the whole thing. Then he went back again, thinking it might be late enough that if he did knock, no one would come to, uh, no one would answer. Then he could leave the book, possibly the roses. But then he dropped the roses into the bushes by her stoop. He would look ridiculous standing there with a bouquet like a suitor, as if he thought he could ingratiate himself, Showing up at her door in the middle of the night, late as he knew it must be, disreputable as he knew he must look, displeased as he assumed she would be. But he did finally knock on the door because he just wanted to see her face. She opened the door, that flinch. He saw tears in her eyes. She said, so you remembered to come after all in the middle of the night, liquor on your breath. She said, it's after midnight. That makes you a day late. This was bad enough. He hardly knew her and he'd almost made her cry. But at least he knew now that she had been expecting him a remarkable thing. He handed her the little package with her book in it and said, I happen to be in the neighborhood, which was what he had planned to say if she seemed not to have remembered the invitation or to have meant it. He said, my apologies, I mean that quite sincerely, and tipped his hat, which he would have removed, except for that fear of trying to seem ingratiating. He did look at her face, no harm in that. He might as well take what pleasure he could before the regret really set in. So he left her porch and set out on a long walk home or somewhere, It struck him how foolish he'd been to tell himself he was living for her sake and how lost he was already without anything at all to tell himself. But he heard her footsteps. She had come after him and she put her hand in the crook of his arm. I kept a a drumstick for you, Mr. Boughton and some stuffing and a piece of pie. Lorraine took the rest over to the church but there's plenty here, she said. I just don't want you to walk away looking so sad. A parlor, very warm after the street, a drab couch on a bright rug, a little bookcase with books stacked on both sides of it, an upright piano with a a lace scarf and a crowd of family pictures, one of them Jesus. He sat down on the couch with his hat beside him and she went into the kitchen to make up a plate for him. He heard uh, that uh, he heard the front door open and close and he felt the cold from it. That woman Lorraine said, I suppose you know there's an old white man asleep on the sofa, I suppose you can explain that. And Della said, oh, leave him be, he's just so weary.
1: Thank you so much, Marilyn. That was wonderful. I We don't have a lot of time left to talk but I really wanted to ask you something that came up in your conversation in 2015 with President Obama. I say a conversation, I was surprised you could get a word in edgewise. But you said, I think that the basis of democracy is the willingness to assume well about other people. You have to assume that basically people want to do the right thing. Now, after we've seen what we've seen over the past five
4: years in the US, do you still think that? Well, I think democracy depends on it. <laughs> I think, to my great grief that there is an open question about whether what democracy requires is what the United States will do. Um, it's a it's a I shouldn't say the United States. I'm saying an important enough faction to cause. An enormous amount of difficulty for the United States. I still think that most people are very loyal to the idea of democracy, but there are there are tendencies that want to defeat traditional impulses and traditional institutions, and that's a very sad fact. You still have hope? Oh, sure. You know why not? Um, I, you know, it's it. I've had such a wonderful life in this country. There are so many things that have been possible for me here that I needn't imagine I could have had anywhere else as experiences and possibilities of all sorts. Um, And, you know, countries go through bad times, and I'm not going to do anything except try to make things better because uh, I'm very much indebted to this culture, and I'm not going to forget it just because it's having a difficult passage
1: that's wonderful thank you so much marilyn please uh stay around while i talk to douglas okay it was really fantastic thank you i'm really enjoying our conversation today i have to tell you our third writer is douglas stewart born in glasgow great city and a long-time resident of new york where he worked in fashion design after graduating from the royal college of art in london just over a year ago, he published his first ever piece of fiction, A Story, in the New Yorker, and followed up with his debut novel, Shuggy Bane, that by the end of the year had won the Booker Prize. Shuggy Bane is an unflinching novel about love and addiction and survival of a mother and son's indelible bond, of living on the margins and growing up in an 80s working-class world that has lost hope. It's compulsive reading and deserving all of its accolades. Kia ora and welcome, Douglas.
3: Hi Paula, thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Douglas, you seem to me like a character in a writer's fairy tale. Your first book, turned down by over 30 publishers, launched in a worldwide pandemic, wins the Booker Prize. I can hear the gnashing of teeth by those foolish publishers from here. Did you ever lose heart about your novel not finding a place in the world?
3: Yeah, I'm only human, I think, and uh, it's it's uh, you know rejection is part of a writer's life, and to face that rejection with your debut novel, and then to publish right into the mouth of a pandemic and see all your work uh, wiped away, you can't help but feel a little disheartened, but. But as much as I couldn't control that, I also couldn't control the booker. And so that was such a wonderful way to finish the year. And, and really, at the end of the day, all I did was write a book and put everything I had into the book and, and sort of hold on while everything else happened around me.
1: Now, I believe the first draft of the novel was 900 pages long. So I, I believe you when you say you put everything into it. But how did you approach editing it down? I mean, what had to come out and what had to absolutely stay in?
3: Uh, Actually, the first draft was 900 pages, but it was single spaced. So it would have been about 1600 to 1800 pages if it had been a manuscript. Uh, you know, the book never changed from the first draft to the final draft in terms of how the story arced and what the characters wanted and how they expressed themselves. What really happened and what I learned was uh, some discipline and the ability to distill the story. So through every successive draft, I paired it back and paired it back to what I really wanted to to tell and, and what I wanted to convey about the Bain family in Glasgow. Uh, one of the joys of writing a novel about the working class in Glasgow is there's such a robust chorus of characters. There are so many people that want to tell you about the time and tell you about what's happening. And I use them uh, to also tell me about the main characters, to really reveal a lot about Agnes's place in the world, her addiction, her hopes and her dreams, and and also how the things she was collapsing under were hurting the people around her, her. Her first and foremost, but then the people really around her. But through the drafts of the novel, I had to peel that back a little bit and really keep the lens on Shuggy and Agnes because, because they were really the heart of the book. And and so that was that was that was the journey.
1: There's a big heart to this book, but I'm interested that you talk about working class Glasgow, because mm-hmm. you said there's an enormous burden for people who are writing stories not set within the middle class. Uh, Peter mm-hmm. Murphy from the Irish Times has said that the UK book lists are still dominated by what he called the updated Victorian novel of manners over working class stories. You said there's a pressure on working class stories to not tell the truth with too much reality. And I was thinking about Kerry Hudson's memoir, Lowborn of Kit de edited anthology, Common People, which had to be crowdfunded to be published. What is the burden on you as a writer writing about the working class or a working class community and who exerts that pressure?
3: You know, there are, there are clauses and there are conditions put on our voices from all angles. First of all, sometimes uh, the working class itself says, why would you tell anyone about that? If you write about something difficult or too realistic or or something, there is a there is a double edged coin of pride and shame within the working class that doesn't want you to necessarily share that with the outside world. But then also, you know, middle class writers can really write about anything they want and it can be beautiful, it can be hard, it can be horrific. And yet when a working class writer does that and when it comes from uh, a place of realism, it suddenly is levied that we're writing a poverty safari or we're telling uh, about a grim life just for effect. And those are things that ultimately mute a lot of working class voices. Those are things that I don't believe are levied against middle class or academic writers. But when someone writes from their corner of the world and uh, they write about it in, with truth and unflinching, as I hoped to do, sometimes that can be met with uh, with a lot of resistance in the circles you try to break into.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, Pete Murphy, uh, also in the Irish Times, uh, said that the last truly urgent and original literary movement to emerge from the UK was made up of outsider artists, Scottish pioneers like James Kelman, prior booker winner, Janice Galloway, Irvin Welsh, and Laura Heard. And do you see yourself as an outsider artist in that tradition?
3: Well, actually, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. I never think of myself as outside of my own life and outside of my own experience. And yet it's when my art or my book intersects with, uh, you know, first of all, New York publishing and then London publishing that I'm reminded that I'm, I'm quite far outside of it. And and not only am I writing about a family that are, that are outside the margins, perhaps, but uh, the book that I was writing was also far outside the zeitgeist. It was really far from what people in publishing were looking for and also hoping to, you know, the things that were selling well for them that they wanted to repeat with other books. And so people couldn't actually quite place it. And then when they were trying to place Shuggy Ben, they were going back to the 90s, to the Scottish movement, to the realism, James Kelman and Agnes Owens and, and Irvin Welsh, as you say. And And for me, that was really striking because that's a 30 year gap. You know, there are so many urgent voices, working class voices in that gap and we're doing our best work every single day. And yet that was really uh, where they were sending me back to, what they were tying me back to.
1: What I mean, when you say that it was not like other things, what do you think the prevailing taste of publishers, what, what do you think they were really looking for that they didn't see in your book?
3: Oh, I'm not sure I'm going to answer what they were looking for. I don't know if I can get my hands around that. But you know... It was, they just didn't know what to make of the book. The book, you said 30 times, it was actually rejected 44 times. And the, the thing, and I think part of this is just nice people saying nice things, but they said things like this will win the book or this will win major literary awards. We just don't know how to get people to read it. We don't know how to publish it. And people tend to focus on the rejection in the story of shaggy Bain, but I actually love that um, because you don't want someone to publish your book that doesn't know what they're going to do with it or, or feels a little lukewarm about it or unsure, you really need champions, especially for a debut novelist. You need someone, an editor, and a publishing house who believe in your work as much as you do. Especially if it's a little bit difficult. And Shuggy, you know, is difficult in many ways.
1: It's not a difficult book to read, though. It's enormously um, accessible, and you have such fluent, clear prose that uh, I mean, it's it's I, I would not want anyone to be deterred at all from picking it up even though its length might have been described by some people as Dickensian. It's it's not a difficult book to read except for the subject matter, but that's what we do as adults, don't we? We read complex books about complex people. My husband is holding up a very aggressive sign that says time for reading. So Douglas, would you read to us from the book, please?
3: I absolutely will, it'd be my pleasure. Um, This is actually when we meet our heroine at the beginning of the book, Agnes Bain, who is the proud, defiant, glamorous matriarch of the Bain family. But uh, the Bain family are about to go through a really difficult time as unemployment under the Thatcher government uh, shoots up to 26% in, in the city. And Agnes is an incredibly glamorous, determined woman, but she is chafing at the smallness of her life. They're living in a high rise tower Uh, in the centre of the city. And she's looking around at her friends and her mother. They're playing cards on a Friday night. And she's wondering, how did I get here? Agnes Bain pushed her toes into the carpet and leaned out as far as she could into the night air. The damp wind kissed her flushed neck and pushed down inside her dress. It felt like a stranger's hand, a sign of living, a reminder of life. With a flick, she watched her cigarette doubt fall the glowing embers dancing 16 floors down onto the dark forecourt. She wanted to show the city this claret velvet dress. She wanted to feel a little envy from strangers, to dance with men who held her proud and close. Mostly, she wanted to take a good drink, to live a little. With the stretch of her calves, she leaned her hip bone on the window frame and let go of the ballast of her toes. Her body tipped down towards the amber city lights and her cheeks flushed with blood. She reached her arms out to the lights, and for a brief moment, she was flying. No one noticed the flying woman. She thought about tilting further then, dared herself to do it. How easy it would be to kid herself that she was flying until it became only falling, and she broke herself on the concrete below. The high-rise flat, she still shared with her mother and father pressed in against her. Everything in the room behind her felt so small, so low-ceilinged and stifling, payday to mass day, a life bought on tick, with nothing that ever felt owned outright. To be 39 and have her husband and her three children all crammed together in her mammy's flat gave her a feeling of failure. Him, her man, who when he shared her bed now seemed to lie on the very edge, made her feel angry with the littered promises of better things. Agnes wanted to put her foot through it all, or to scrape it back like it was spoilt wallpaper to get her nail under it and to rip it all away. With a bored slouch, Agnes fell back into the stuffy room and felt the safety of her mammy's carpet below her feet again. The other women hadn't looked up. Peevishly, she scraped the needle across the record player. She clawed at her hairline and turned the volume up too loud. Come on, please, just the one wee dance. No yet, spat Nan Flanagan. She was arranging silver and copper coins into neat piles. I'm just about to pimp out the lot of you. Reany Sweeney rolled her eyes and held her cards close. You've one filthy mind. Well, don't say I didn't warn you. Nan bit the end of a slab of fried fish and sucked the grease from her lips. When I'm done taking all your menage money at these cards, you're going to have to go home and fuck that bag of soup bones you call her husband for more. No chance. Rene made a lazy sign of the cross. I've been sitting on it since Lent, and I've no intention of letting them get at it until next Christmas. I once held off so long I got a new colour telly in the bedroom. The women cackled without breaking their concentration on the cards. It was sweaty and close in the front room. Agnes watched her mammy, little Lizzie, carefully studying her hand, flanked by the bulk of Nan Flanagan on one side and Rene Sweeney on the other. The women sat thigh to thigh and tore at the last scraps of a fish supper. They were moving coins and folding cards with greasy fingers. It bored Agnes. There was a time before baggy cardigans and skinny husbands that she had led them all up to the dancing. As girls, they had clung to one another like a string of pearls and sang at the top of their voices all the way down Sucky Hall Street. They had been under age, but Agnes, sure of herself even at fifteen, knew she would get them in. The doorman always saw her gleaming at the back of the line and beckoned her forward, and she pulled the other girls behind her like a chain gang. They held on to the belt of her coat and muttered protest, but Agnes just smiled her best smile for the doorman, the smile she kept for men, the same one she hid from her mother. She had loved to show off her new smile back then. She had got her teeth from her daddy's side and the Campbell teeth had always been weak. They were a reason for humility in an otherwise handsome face. Her own adult teeth had come in small and crooked, and even when they were new, they had never been white because of the smoking and her mammy's strong tea. At 15, she had begged Lizzie to let her have them all taken out. The discomfort of the false teeth was nothing when compared to the movie star smile she thought they must give her. Each new tooth was broad and even and as straight as Elizabeth Taylor's. Agnes sucked at her porcelain. Now they were every Friday night, these same women playing cards in her mammy's front room. There was not a single drop of makeup between them and nobody had much of a heart to sing anymore. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Douglas. It's interesting, you talk about Agnes as your heroine. She's an anti-heroine in many ways and completely entrancing. And by the way, I love hearing you read about a fish supper, something I discovered, I think our first week in Glasgow, when we went to a fish and chip shop, would you like a fish supper? We're like, I don't know what that is or what you're saying, but sure. Now the (laughs) novel is dedicated to your mother who died when you were 16. And you said that you believe she felt unseen in life in a way that that Agnes is unseen in many ways. But could you talk about what that means?
3: Yeah. um, You know, it was a time... where a city was really controlled by the working men in the city and the poll of the week was your father going out to make a living and to bring the money home but it was also a time of uh, real upheaval between men and between women where when men's works and li- men's work and their jobs start to collapse women have this moment where they have to redefine themselves and what marriage means to them. And so my mother was a single mother, and the character in the novel becomes a single mother also. But she also starts to slip into addiction. She really falls into alcoholism. And even in society and in Scottish literature, you know, there is a rich tradition of the poor suffering soul. But they are often men, and when they fail, we root for them, or we can accept them, or we we just think that's kind of what men do. You know, I think about the quartet from Trainspotting by Irvin Welsh. But when women do it, when mothers do it, uh, when the character in the book does it, everyone turns away. First of all, the condemner. Uh, it's a very hard thing to to see a, a fallible mother, uh, but then they leave her very isolated and incredibly lonely, and that compounds the shame. And so my own mother and the character of Agnes feels very overlooked in that way. Feels very brushed off to the margins. And it was never that my own mother didn't have a voice, because by God she could roar. You know, she was a very ferocious, uh, fierce woman. It was that people didn't want to listen to her. And uh, and so in a way, writing Shuggy Bain was about adding that voice. Certainly adding that voice to Scottish literature uh, and to post-industrial Britain, um, but also to just show what it's like when you're a a son of a single mother who's who's suffering with addiction.
1: Absolutely. I'm wondering now if we could actually bring back Marilyn and Miro to join this discussion. Just thinking about families, um, I often cite the Alan Bennett quote that every family has a secret that it's not quite like other families and I feel in your novel, Douglas Shuggy, is is desperately trying to hold together this family that is not quite like other families, even when it just gets down to him and and his mother. But all of you are writing, I think in various ways, about families under pressure in these books, of fault lines that emerge because of behavior, because of belief, because of love. And Marilyn, in housekeeping, you wrote the line, families will not be broken. And I wondered if you could all um, answer a question: Where do your families, do the families in your book, find strength? What keeps them together? I mean,
2: Miro, would you would you mind considering this first? Um, well, I, well, when I was writing a long time ago, and I started creative writing, pretty much coming out of university and in, in, in my early twenties, I wrote a story about my. Parents' marriage, and I, you know, I don't even know if that story worked, but I always remembered the last line, and um, because it seemed to capture something, and and it was just that they were vegetarians, but it was their um, murderous imaginations that kept the marriage alive, or or maybe it was humour because they had very very shared black sense of humour, um, and even sort of in later life when they would come together very occasionally, they would just lapse into these just. Um, descriptions, you know, uh, uh, I guess, of others or of incidents that were very funny um, and sort of black and a bit grotesque, and so I, and it always astounded me. Um, you know, I, I remember my sister and I once going on a family outing, all of us in the car. I don't think that had ever happened, and and they were sort of telling awful stories, and um, we kind of looked at each other, and it was very freakish. Uh, sort of simulation of a normal family that we'd never had. Um, so, so maybe it was that. I mean, they're all writers; all everybody writes in my family.
1: That's a terrible thing, isn't it? It Just it sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> yes, Douglas. What do you think about this? What what keeps the family strong?
3: You know, I think first of all it's love, and I think it's the the remarkable kind of love that children can have for flawed parents, Paula. Uh, and part of that comes from the burden of care. Uh, Agnes's children in the book take care of her. They take care of her mentally and physically and and the home. And there's just no other choice. And part of that is a wonderful thing, I think, because there is no context for the children, certainly not even for Shuggie. He doesn't know things can be different. He doesn't know... Uh, that other people are living different ways he just understands that he loves his mother and his brother loves his mother and uh, they do whatever they have to do and there's a there's a comfort in that i think but at the heart what keeps them together i think is love and i'm asked often about hope because hope sometimes in literature can be a very bright shiny uh very bold sunrise and but in life I've known hope to be quite a quiet thing it's just the hope that maybe tomorrow might not be as hard as today was maybe it'll be a little bit better maybe the person you love the most in the world will get better and and take a step towards uh recovery and and that's really that very faint hope that keeps them that keeps them all clinging to each other
1: Absolutely M- Marilyn do you think that Jack can have hope do you think he has hope is there hope for Jack uh,
4: what can I say um Jack sort of, as he says, I think, if I remember the book correctly, he he sort of enjoys himself. You know, he um, he is um, full of habits of thought, poetry, interior, you know, joking with himself and so on. Um, he, I think, doesn't have a a hope of ever satisfying other people's standards of having overcome his difficulties or anything like that. I think he'd have trouble even naming his difficulties. But he, uh, I mean, I think, for example, that he drinks because he has problems rather than that he's, you know what I mean, the other way around. But he um, he is himself. Um, he is the inheritor of his father's presence and worldview and he loves his father, you know. Um, He, I mean, he he certainly doesn't aspire in the way that people are conditioned to do. He has, he owes nothing to, you know, tales of personal overcoming and advancement, Uh, but he's just um, a person who has a, a kind of sensitivity that can be painful under many circumstances and is still sensitivity and still gives him a sort of an interesting sense of what the world is, uh, even even though his idea of it is quite solitary, quite inefficacious as far as, you know, satisfying any ordinary standard of thriving. And I do think that what you've just said,
1: the interesting sense of what the world is, applies to all three of the books um, you've all been talking about today. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks so much to the three of you, Miro Bilbra, Marilyn Robinson, and Douglas Stewart. Please uh, remember, audience, that the books of all the featured writers in our salons are available for sale at the venue. And the Autumn Salon series is happening every morning of the festival, so we have our final one tomorrow. Join us to hear Irish actor turned memoirist Gabriel Byrne, award winning Trinidadian British novelist Monique Roffey and our own crime writing star, J.P. Pomeri. Kia ora to you all. See you tomorrow. Māte
0: wā. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.